close your worship guide says we'll be in Luke 11 we'll finish the chapter we've been working through for a few weeks we have a chunk of of a passage a larger chunk but we will fly through it so read uh This passage, beginning in verse 33 of Luke 11, all the way to 54. Then we go to the cross-reference in Matthew 23, which is the uh, Matthew's uh, version of the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. They're highlighting their hypocrisy. Uh, Makes me think of uh, taking apologetics classes and the answering objections to Christianity. One of the objections often comes at is that the church is full of hypocrites and therefore we don't want to be involved with your church. Uh, I, th- I forget who it was that said, you know, it's, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Uh, Well, uh, that objection is not true. At least we hope our church is not filled with hypocrites. Um, Actually, that's a a slander against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because people don't understand or know what hypocrisy is, And they watch us, they know us, they know we go to church regular, they know that we claim to be born again, they know that we claim to be made new by Christ, and then they observe us. And they see the things we do, and they hear the things we say. And they see us sin. So they say, whether to our face or to themselves, uh, you're a Christian, but you sin. You're nothing more than a hypocrite. Well, let me just say, if we claim to be without sin, then we do sin, and we are hypocrites. Uh, If the skeptics claim that the church is full of sinners, they're right. You know, there's not uh, really any other organization that I can think of that one of the requirements to be a part is to admit your sin. But that's the church. Hypocrisy is a sin, but it's only one of many sins. It's the sin of saying uh, we don't do something and then we do it. It's a presentation, it's a deception, it's a pretending to be more righteous than we actually are, more holy than We are. Jesus hates every kind of sin. He hates all sin. But he uh, particularly points out the sin of hypocrisy. And in particular, in these who are these scribes and Pharisees who are the designated leadership in the uh, Jewish faith or Jewish religion, however you want to say that. And in this passage today, he's going to pointedly talk with these leaders, these leaders who are leading people astray. Last week, we saw Jesus, three reactions to Jesus casting out a demon uh, that had made a man mute. One of the reactions as Jesus casts this demon out, and it's obvious, and there's no 
refuting the fact that this man was different. He was able to speak when before he encountered Jesus, he could not. And so some said, well, Jesus does this by magic. He does this with the power, by the power of Satan and his demons. Remember a lady, a lady in the crowd, as she was, how blessed, she screamed out, how blessed is your mother to have you as a son, Jesus. And he says, no, the real blessing comes to those who hear the word and keep it. And the third response is, uh, I don't know, give us a little more evidence before we believe in it. Show us a sign. And of course, Jesus says, you've got plenty of signs. The implication there, show us this. You haven't shown us enough. It's your fault that we don't believe, Jesus. You haven't given us enough information. And so... Jesus now is going to continue with that idea, answering that idea. He's going to show them, actually, it's the other way around. Uh, it's not Jesus who's at fault. It's these unbelieving enemies of his. It's their fault. The problem is not that Jesus hasn't given enough evidence. He's the light of the world, and he has been set upon the lamps up on the table and is shining into the world for all to see, but it's hidden because of the darkness of their hearts. Satan has blinded the minds of these unbelievers because they're committed to unbelief. They're committed to reject. They can't see the light of the world that is before their eyes. So they asked to see a sign. If you'll just give us a sign, we'll believe. And Jesus knows that's not true. We know that's not true. Jesus says later on, when we get to Luke chapter 15, if they won't believe the Moses or the prophets, they won't believe any sign, even if someone rises from the dead. Every sign that was necessary has been given, had been given. The resurrection had not happened. The ultimate sign had not happened yet. But they had all kinds of signs. Clearly, Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. John says in chapter 1, of his gospel. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness pays no attention to it. Light has come. Men love this darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't recognize the light, they won't receive the light. So the Father sent His Son into the world to be the light. And these unbelievers are turning their back on this very gift. So we read through the Scriptures, darkness, there's two kinds of darkness. One is a lack of knowledge. Just don't know. The other is the darkness of a willful unbelief. And that's where these leaders are. That's where these skeptics are, these critics of the Lord Jesus. And that un willful unbelief that puts them into darkness is much more dangerous than a lack of knowledge. It's raining in the heart of those who hate Jesus. And once it's present, it's hard to overcome. Verse 35 of Luke 11, Therefore be careful lest the light that is in you is darkness. Let's read this passage. We'll read it all. It's extended. And then we'll ask the Lord to help us, and we will walk through these really two sections, uh, a short one and a long one. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, 
but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people will walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you lead people, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you built Build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. And to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. That's our passage for today. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and help those who are preaching his word this morning around our city. We come to you our Father. And we ask that you speak. We've sung it. Now we pray it. Lord, that you would speak to us as a body, as a congregation, your people gathered together to hear from you through the voice of humanity. Speak, we pray. Father, I pray that you would guard my mouth, bind my tongue into obedience to your word. Lord, we do pray for pastors and preachers and teachers all around. Father, that you would empower them by your Spirit. Fill me, I pray. I pray for the hearers today, that they would listen with the ears of faith.
not skeptical. Seeing your word as coming directly from you. Seeking a changed heart. Lord, help us today. Please, Lord, do not let us leave unchanged. So we understand we cannot be neutral. We're either for Christ or we're against him. Your dear son. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this first section, verses 33 through 36, the basic sense is uh, Jesus tells this situation. He begins to say there, uh, in, or he, he continues saying, of no light, no one after lighting a lamp puts us in a cellar. His basic sense is, let the light shine into your hearts. Stop your unbelief, as he talks to these leaders. They see Jesus work. They see his miracles. They hear his teaching that is like uh, no other uh, authoritatively, but they count it as the work of the devil. Uh, they hear his word, but that's not enough. They ask for more evidence, more signs. And what Jesus told them was if they listened as those listened to Jonah's preaching in Nineveh, or if they sought the truth of the word, like the queen of Sheba, who came to hear Solomon's wisdom, they wouldn't need a sign. They'd have repented long ago. And more, one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon, is right before them, and yet he says this generation lives remains in darkness. So, verse 33, why would you light a lamp, bother with lighting a lamp, and then hide it? That's exactly what Jesus says these uh, critics are doing. If you want to have a light in the house, you don't hide it under a bushel or a, in the cellar. You put it on a stand where it can light the entire room. And so Jesus comes in verses 34 to 36 with this analogy, the eye is the lamp of the body. If you stand in a dark room with your eyes closed, you will see nothing. If you or someone turns the light on and you keep your eyes closed, you'll see nothing, right? The only way for light to enter into our brains, our, our understanding, is to open our eyes. Well, Jesus uses this point. He illustrates that the uh, requirements for seeking signs have been fulfilled. He's given these signs, and it's not that there's insufficient evidence for who he is, or the light is not quite bright enough. God has turned on the lights for the whole world in that he sent his son. But men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil and the light exposes their sin. When God turns on the light, sinful men run. Uh, they shut their eyes. By nature, when our lives are characterized by sin, we live in this darkness, that, the spiritual darkness that Jesus speaks about. We fear nothing more than being exposed by the light that lays bare our souls and our sins. When all is said and done, unbelief is not intellectual problem it's a moral problem uh, unbelief is not because God hasn't made himself clear because he hasn't revealed himself enough it's a moral problem by nature we don't want to believe 
Because if we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, uh, the deity of Jesus Christ, then we have to face ourselves and our sin. And we must repent. And that's the reason for our resistance. We don't want to admit we're helpless. We don't want to admit we're hopeless. Without Christ, in spite of a world that's filled with the majesty of God, the light of Christ, we shut our eyes and our body remains in darkness. And so what Jesus is doing, he's accusing this generation of being blind, a blindness that is the result of their unbelief, a blindness that works its way into all of their life. Paul says that uh, in the flesh you cannot please God because you're just groping in the darkness, thinking and trying to figure life out when you're unable to see the true light. If you don't have the light of Christ in your heart, no matter how clear you can see, no matter how well the doctors remove your cataracts, no matter how good a pair of glasses you have, you're living in total darkness without the Lord Jesus in your life, your heart. And so what Jesus does here is if you continue, he's telling these leaders, if you continue Without Christ, if you continue in your unbelief, you're on the road to an eternity of darkness. You know, the darkness just describes our fallen condition. Uh, by nature, we're children of darkness. We prefer it rather than the light. The light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus exposes us. Faced with our true condition, again, we run from the light until we rejoice in the gospel, until our eyes are opened. Christ becomes, the righteousness of Christ becomes ours by faith when we're sanctified by God, when we're set apart by the Spirit, vessels useful to the Master, our whole person is illumined, Jesus says here. We gain true knowledge of God, and that leads to peace with Him, the blood of Jesus Christ, and uh, the experience of the the peace of God in our daily life. We're, no, we're reconciled to God, no longer uh, at enmity, at war with Him, and we are day by day uh, enabled to experience the peace of God. This is all understanding. We become able to, and willing to rejoice with this inexpressible joy, full of glory. And, and there, uh, the, verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp gives off its rays. The emphasis is on the complete completion of coming a new creature in Christ. The gospel is the light of the world because Christ is the light of the world. Without Him, your whole life is in darkness. With Him, it's nothing but light. And that's what that analogy, that's what that episode about the light under a bushel or standing out uh, on the uh, table, that was Jesus' point. He's to bring these leaders to the point to understand if you stay where you are, you ha you'll spend eternity in darkness. But you're in the darkness now and you don't know it. The eyes of your heart are closed. You can't see it. You don't buy it. 
and you make excuses. <laughs> then verse 33, I mean 37, I'm sorry, while Jesus was speaking, or I think the New American says, after Jesus has finished speaking or has spoken, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. You can imagine the Pharisee coming home. I'm sure you guys have never sprung this on your wife. Guess who's coming to dinner? Dear, we're, we're, having, a, uh, we're having a big lunch. And Jesus is coming to lunch. Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. The word dine is something more, uh, not a big dinner, it's lunch. A kind of uh, a luncheon. And so Jesus went in and he reclined at the table. And this Pharisee is going to be very surprised at what, how this dinner party, how this luncheon turns out. And because he is surprised is going to lead to a, a, a savior, his savior's, hopefully his savior, is going to lead to a savior's rebuke. So a Pharisee's surprise leads to a savior's rebuke. The seriousness of the sin of rejecting the lie, coupled with the fact that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost, leads him to reveal the result if they continue in unbelief. And so he deals with these scribes and Pharisees, or lawyers, scribe and lawyers, same uh, person, uh, uh, identifying different aspects of what it was that their job was. But he does this, he's uh, pointing out the result with six woes, three woes for the Pharisees, three woes, for the lawyers. The opposite of the blessing of God is the curse of God. When the prophets of the Old Testament were about to bring or pronounce a curse upon the people, they would always begin with woe. Woe. An oracle of woe in their message warned the people that um, the curse was coming. At the end of Revelation, or in Revelation chapter 8, we read of God's final judgment. And John says, Then I looked, I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That's the final judgment. Here, Jesus pronounces what's going to happen if they don't turn and believe in him. And he uses this oracle of a prophet, if you will, this uh, pronouncement with these woes. The, the invitation is extended. Jesus accepts. He knows their thoughts. You know, it's hard to know the intention of the Pharisee when he invites them. Possibly he could have wanted to know more about Jesus. Maybe he was just trying to find a little more out, a little more about him. Uh, I, I just put in my notes, that's very iffy. Because what we see as this plays itself out is he's invited a bunch of his friends. He's invited other Pharisees. He's invited these lawyers, these scribes. Seems like they're hoping to set a trap for Jesus to catch him in something that he'll either do or say that will incriminate him to show that he can be the Messiah. And Jesus quickly... Uh, obliges them by sitting down without washing his hands. In verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So the invitation has been extended, and now here comes a tradition that's ignored by Jesus. It's not a matter of hygiene that they washed their hands, but it was, again, a cleansing rite according to the tradition of the Pharisees. Wasn't required by God's law. I know we require our children and ourselves, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness, but that's not, that's not a 
biblical proverb. Uh, but this is not a matter of cleansing, cleaning of hygiene. It's not required by God's law. It's added to God's law by the Pharisees. Passed down from generation to generation to generation. A tradition. One of the many regulations. One of the many uh, rules that they passed down. And adherence to it was as if salvation depended upon doing these things. And Jesus says, no, that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. He's going, he sits down, ready to eat. You know, David, you remember the Psalm, Psalm 24, who can ascend to the Lord's hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that's who can. He's not talking about washing your hands off before you do anything, before you climb up the hill to go into Jerusalem. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a heart uh, uh, and hands that have been cleansed by God. I mean, the, the guest, the Pharisees guest. Jesus, you know, had the cleanest hands of anybody, right, who's ever lived. Uh, his heart was pure, free from any ceremonial defilement. There was no need for Jesus to wash his hands. He couldn't be ceremonial defiled like the Pharisees would teach that they had. And in verse 39, and the Lord said to him, we don't have any record of any conversation. I'm just going to take it that the Lord knew his thoughts. He read his mind. So he lays it out. He sees he's perceived. He, he sees that he's uh, offended. So Jesus just lays it out. You're, you're so zealous to put on this facade of purity. You don't want any of your blemishes seen. Like someone who's now cleaning up after the dinner. And got a bowl that had chili in it. They turn the bowl over upside down and clean the outside of it and then put it into the cupboard without cleaning the chili out of it. He said, that's what you're like. You're ignoring the, 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 the side of the dish where all the food is accumulated. Your hands may be clean, he says. Externally, your hands may be clean, but your hearts and minds are full of greed. They're full of evil. He says, you fools. I know we don't like to say that. My version says, you foolish ones, I believe. Oh, no, my version says, you fools. Many versions won't say that. They'll say, you foolish ones. Um, Jesus warns about calling people fools. Fools are down in the core of their heart. Foolish. Fool has said in his heart there is no God. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fools don't fear God. They may fear people. They may feel their bo fear their boss. They, <clears throat> they fear the police. They don't fear God. See, Jesus can see into the heart. We can't. It's probably best we don't call people fools. Jesus warns about that in the Sermon on the Mount. But he has every right to see into their hearts and tell them they are fools for rejecting him, for not believing in him. This foolish, being a fool is not, a, not about intelligence. It's about having no reverence, no awe, no fear of God. So what Jesus is saying is your uh, man-made requirements added to the law. You heap these burdens upon them and yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law. What?
you give us give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. The Old Testament has these passages where obedience to ceremony, their ceremony given by God, is contrasted with obedience to the more important requirements of the law, the weightier matters of the law. This is Micah 6, three verses out of Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, a calf, a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Will I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is this going to make God happy? Making all of these sacrifices. <clears throat> and then Micah goes on. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So if the, <clears throat> the ceremonies that God has appointed are not as important as justice and love and humility, obedience to man-made ceremonial regulations are worthless, is worthless, if your heart is full of sin. Fools, he says, who, who made your, the one who made your body and soul? is more concerned about your soul than he is about your body. Hendrickson paraphrases that last verse uh, of uh, verse, 44, uh, verse 41. Put your inner self into the business of helping the poor and everything will be clean for you. Put your inner self into the business of helping the poor and everything will be clean for you. You can't earn your salvation by helping the poor, but when works of mercy and kindness flow out of a heart of gratitude because the Lord has opened the eyes to Jesus, and you're grateful for the grace you've received, God is glorified then, and we're blessed. Blessed are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But woe to you, Pharisees, because you tithe all these herbs in your garden, out of your garden. The first woe comes at the Pharisees because of their unnecessary tithing. Uh, they go beyond what the Word of God demands or commands. <clears throat> uh, Of their, of their uh, crops, they were required to tithe grain and wine and oil. The olive oil, the wine, and the grain. They weren't required to tithe of these little herbs, these uh, mint and rue and every herb. They should have tithed according to God's law without neglecting the weightier matters. That's what he says, justice and love. They were stressing human regulations at the expense of God's ordinance. Just, Matthew says justice, mercy, mercy, and faithfulness is more important than tithing, especially these man-made rules about tithing herbs. He says they obeyed in the little things, but they left off the big things. What does that say to us about not doing the little things? They did tithe. They tithed extra. They neglected the weighty things. They did the little things. What does it say to us about doing, not doing the little things? 
You know, not that we don't talk much about money. There's a mailbox back there that takes whatever cash or check or you want to put on the wall there, or you can do it online. But talking about tithing, the, the, now that we're in the new covenant, the tithing laws are not binding. <clears throat> but the new covenant does have principles. The New Testament does have principles of giving. We're to give systematically and we're to give regularly. On the first day of the week, he says, set aside to support the ministry of the Lord Jesus regularly, generously, proportionately, as God has given to you. Generously, cheerfully, not as a burden. You see, the Lord doesn't want your money. This whole section, He wants your heart. And with your heart right with God, he says, now, here's how you should give. Give as, as it has been given to you. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured out to you. But that's just the first woe. They over-tithed. They were more scrupulous than even God wanted them to be or commanded them to be. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and, and greetings in the marketplaces. There's unbecoming vanity here in this uh, woe that Jesus pronounced. They love to sit in the front. These seats in the synagogue would be this first row here brought back to the stage and turned around. That's the seats they like to sit in. They would be close to the speaker, the one who's praying, the one who's reading, the one who might be preaching, and then they could see you, and you could see them, and you could see how pinched they would be when a, a, a deep nugget of truth was put out. And they loved to be marched down the aisle, ushered down the aisle, and put into these seats. It was a seat of honor. Not everybody got to sit here. Unbecoming vanity. They craved status. They craved recognition wherever they were. Church, the marketplace, work, wherever, home. And these Pharisees were epitomized by the uh, Pharisee, you know, who stands, far, who stands in front of everybody. And, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this poor Publican over here, I tithe, I fast, I this and I that. That's the epitome of the pharisaical attitude. And Jesus says, woe to you, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and, mark and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. Verse 44, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Um, before Passover, when everyone were, was, every Jew was called to come to uh, Jerusalem to observe the Passover once a year, they always whitewashed uh, the tombs, the graveyards. You know, it's like, uh, uh, Sean, when... when, when important dignitaries would come to the plant, uh, we put new white rock on top of all the old dirty rock, you know, all along the street. So as they drive through, oh, this is so pretty. Well, what they would, that's not the only purpose for the graveyards or these graves to be pretty. It was also so that they might be marked out because the Pharisees had a tradition. They added a law that if you stepped on a grave, stepped on a gravestone, you became defiled because there were bones under that gravestone. And so you couldn't participate in the Passover. And so if you didn't whitewash all of the, all of the graves, somebody might unwillingly step on this thing and then they'll get caught 
called out and won't be able to participate in this Passover that they only observe once a year. And so some graves are inadvertently unmarked. No worship for that person as they step upon them. Uh, Matthew calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Outwardly beautiful, defiled on the inside. And that's what a hypocrite is. What you see is not what you get. Uh, What you see disguises what's underneath. It's like the Hollywood actors. You can hear, if you listen to interviews sometimes with these Hollywood actors, they, say, they talk about buying into the role they're playing, but they, they, they'll tell you, it's not me. I'm just acting. That's the picture of the word hypocrisy. It was from the stage where they would put those masks on, you know, and, and, and act out something that's not who they really are. That's what these Pharisees were doing, and they were hypocrites. And Jesus gives them three woes. Woe, woe, woe upon you for adding to the law. For trying to look good. For trying to be somebody that you're not. Because your heart is full of unbelief. It's full of evil and greed. And then, verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. (laughs) Okay, woe to you. Three times. Um, I don't want y'all to be left out. Woe to you, verse 46, to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The legalism that they impose. Piling on extra laws and extra traditions. These scribes, these lawyers, they were experts in the law of God, the law of Moses. Jesus says, my burden's easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, he says. But these lawyers added requirements and rules where God had uh, left them free, they were now bound, you know. Uh, uh, the Sabbath, they developed a list of 39 things that were work. You can imagine sowing and plowing the farmers. I mean, they had to take care of their farm, but sowing was work and plowing and reaping. But they also had things like tying a knot. Couldn't tie a knot. Couldn't start a fire. Couldn't put out a fire. Uh, way beyond Scripture in this load. The hypocrisy was that they added burdens, but they wouldn't lift a finger to carry any of the burdens. They wouldn't obey their own burdens that they were adding on. Made me think of uh, Galatians chapter 6. This life is full or fraught with burdens. Some... God gives us to bear them alone. Galatians 6.5, each will have to bear his own load. Others, God intends for us to be helped bear these burdens, to be helped by others to bear these burdens. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and and so fulfill the law of Christ. These, not only would they not bear the burdens they put on the others, they wouldn't help the others with the heavy burdens that they added to them. Woe to you, lawyers, for the legalism that you impose upon the people, you hypocrites. And then also, uh, beginning in verse 47, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, Well, they, they sustain traditions. In fact, evil traditions. They wanted the people to think that they were honoring these prophets by uh, building or rebuilding or refurbishing uh, the prophets' tombs. But the only way to honor the prophets is to 
live according to the prophet's messages. And they weren't doing that at all. He says, your fathers killed the prophets. This woe goes all the way down to verse uh, 52. Your fathers killed the prophets. You're, you're building the tombs. You must approve of what your fathers did. They killed. You build. You complete what they started. Probably doing it for recognition. You're such hypocrites. You never condemned your fathers for killing the prophets. And your agreement with them brings blood, their blood upon your head. All the way from Abel to Zechariah. You know Abel's at the front, right? Second Chronicles, the, end of the last chapter of Second Chronicles, which is the end of the history of the Old Testament, essentially, Zechariah is killed, the priest. From A to Z, from Alpha to Omega of the Old Testament, all the prophets that were killed, their blood is upon you because you continue to participate in the traditions that your fathers began. In fact, it won't be long before in their hatred they will do their own killing. And we'll see that in the last two verses. And in the third woe in 52, verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Those who were meant to unlock the truths of the Scripture, the truths of the Word of God for the people, to lead them into truth and into the kingdom of God. they actually locking them out of the kingdom of God. Not only are they shutting the kingdom of God to the people, they're not even going into the kingdom of God themselves. Hosea preaches, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They're bearing the law of God under this, these man-made traditions, trading salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah The one whom God sent, they traded that for salvation by obedience to all these handmade regulations. Matthew chapter 15. Why, why do the, your disciples, Jesus is asked, why do your disciples break the tradition? He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? That's where he says, you give your money to the temple that should be used to take care of your parents. But the tradition says you don't have to take care of your parents if you give the money to the temple. Woe on you. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And Isaiah says that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're making false disciples with a false gospel. Making them twice as much the child of hell as they were before. It's what Matthew said, or what Jesus says in Matthew. And so he says, woe to you. The real key to knowledge of God, entering into the kingdom of God is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus said, if I'm doing this, these miracles by the hand of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived. And Paul, as he's teaching about sin and grace in Romans 3, he crosses the line from sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the ending summary passage, uh, uh, section of sin. And then he the next verse, all of, for, uh, 323, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he begins to introduce grace and justification. We're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. But by faith, we're justified as God redeemed us through Christ Jesus in his death. So you listen to the word of God. Do you listen to the word of God interestedly, skeptically? How's your heart? Are you in unbelief? What does he say in verse 35? Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Lest what you think is the light in you is really, truly darkness. Barry read 1 John 2. I'm writing no new commandment to you, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever hates his brother, whoever loves his brother, abides in the light in him there, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Jesus says, be careful. Warning, woe to you. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So the last two verses here, what's happened? Jesus' truths is stark. I mean, this is not how the Pharisee planned the dinner party, right? They gathered together and uh, probably for ominous reasons. And Jesus doesn't give them a chance. Look at verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Well, maybe they came with not so evil intentions, but they're leaving. Jesus leaving leaves them with evil intentions intent, right? They press in on him terribly hard. They question him with hostile intent about many things. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the gotcha kind of questions. They question him about many things so they can see and find and uh, hopefully uh, they're lying in wait, a word that has the picture of hunting a wild beast. They're hunting him down to catch him in one slip. Ha, gotcha. Catch him off guard, hoping he'll say something incriminating. They knew that proverb that said, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. In our modern vernacular, better to keep your mouth shut and thought a fool than to open it and remove all doubt, right? Well, the infuriating thing about Jesus is as they try and try and try to trap him, they're unsuccessful. And that just makes them matter. He does not conform to this proverb. 
For us, the more we talk, the more we get ourselves in trouble. The more Jesus talks, the more he drives home the truth of who he is and what he will do and then what he has done ever since. Their curiosity about him, if there was curiosity, has turned into a deadly hatred. Now, it's easy for us in conservative Christianity to work ourselves into a bit of a pharisaical attitude. I mean, we got this right. It's easy to want to be noticed. There's nothing wrong with knowing that what it is that you do matters to others. We want a life that's worthwhile. But we don't minister to one another. We don't live our lives so that we can gain recognition. We live for an audience of one. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to God. We don't try to honk off others. We don't try to irritate people. We don't become a peculiar people just for the sake of being different. But as Christians, we seek to live to the glory of God for the sake of others because we have been loved deeply by God. If you're not a Christian today, you're in the same place. Maybe you're not reading your Bible and uh, throwing rock, wanting to throw rocks at it or hating what it says. But if the Lord Jesus has not captured your heart and life, if you've not turned to him in repentance and faith, you're as bad off as the scribes and the Pharisees whose woes have been pronounced upon, who are, you walk, you can see with your eyes and you can walk out the door and you can get in your car and you can drive off, but you're living in darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can remove the veil. He'll give you a sense of what life is all about. You think you got it. You think you know it. The Lord Jesus is the one in whom the answers come. He's the light of the world. The Lord has sent him into the world to light. To light your life. And when he does... It will be full of light. And you'll become a light to the world also. Don't leave unchanged. Commit yourself to the Word of God. Saint and sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him. Father, we do thank You We thank you that in some of these areas we see ourselves. And so we thank you for your word. Your word that exposes our sin, our, the sin of hypocrisy, other sins. We thank you for the guilt that you uh, that arises. And we thank you for the provision that comes to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess. We confess Jesus Christ our only hope. We confess our sin without uh, excuse. And by your Spirit, we turn from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you stand, we will be sent off into the fellowship hall. The benediction there at the end of verse 4. If you'd like to talk about any of these things, I, I'm, I'll be around. Track me down or any of the other men in the church. Depart in peace according to God's word, for your eyes have seen the salvation that he has prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to his people, Israel.